It's been a morning of technical hitches, but I think we're okay. It's great to see you all. Um, thank you for coming. If you want God to speak to you, why don't you just bow our heads and let's briefly pray. Father, please help us to see wonderful things in your word. Help us to see Jesus clearly, to understand all that he's done for us, and to respond to his mercy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over 20 years ago now, um, there was a big excitement about the, millen the millennial celebrations. I can hardly say the word. I'm so excited about it. Um, and uh, they raised a lot of public funds, I think through uh, the lottery, uh, into various projects. And one of the big projects was the Millennium Dome uh, in the East End of London. And they had this big millennial exhibition about all things British. And Eva Jurekner, a Czech-born architect, was assigned uh, the role of designing the spirit zone in the Millennium Dome. It was a kind of a controversial choice because she'd already expressed that she didn't think that God had anything to do with the millennial celebration. Uh, but nevertheless, she got the contract. Her, her initial plan was to build a pyramid of glass for people to sort of gather underneath it and meditate. Um, but after a bit of pressure, her plans were altered and Christianity was given a place in the exhibition um, amongst the displays of other major world religions. Uh, the, the Christian exhibition covered some of the events of the life of Jesus and his teaching, but she refused, however, to put in a Christian cross as part of the display. She is quoted as saying, to me, the cross is just the symbol of suffering. And her summary of uh, Jesus in the spirit zone read, Jesus was a good man who died tragically young. Now, was that a good summary? People don't want to commit, but most people are gently going, we're so, no, it wasn't a good summary, was it? It was a rubbish summary. Uh, I don't think she understood Christianity at all, and I think Mark would be shocked. So we're going to look and see what Mark has to say here. Um, I don't think you can understand um, Jesus without understanding his death. You can't understand Christianity without understanding the cross of Christ. I don't think you can be a Christian unless really you've got to the point where you can say that the death of Jesus has become the defining event of your life. And I want to defend that by showing it from Mark's gospel today. Um, it'll help if you have it in front of you. In verses 32 to 34, we see clearly that Jesus had come to die. If you look at verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And so in a few words, we get a dramatic word picture uh, of this scene, and I think the reaction gives you the drama. Um, why uh, are they astonished? Why are they afraid? Well, Mark's been telling us about how Jesus, as he's gone through his ministry, has kept coming into conflict with the religious leaders, and how they've been plotting to kill him. And now he's heading to Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of uh, the religious Jewish establishment. He's going to the very center of it all. Reasons enough to be afraid. And the disciples were astonished because there must have been something about his face, something about the way he was walking that made it crystal clear that he uh, had a focused determination to go to Jerusalem. 
well, maybe he was just optimistic that things would work out. We'll take a look again at verse 32 and notice the word again. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. This is the third time in Mark's account where Jesus has been crystal clear to his disciples about what would take place in Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 33 gives us even more detail than the rest. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus had come to die didn't take him by surprise he knew exactly what was going to happen to him this is exactly what did happen to him he knew it would and I wonder have we ever stopped to really consider the incredible bravery and courage of Jesus I have to confess to you I still feel a bit anxious every time I stand up and speak to people I keep hoping it'll disappear but it doesn't quite disappear for me. I always feel a bit anxious. And I don't know why, why is that. I mean, I think it's in part because you're not sure what sort of response you're going to get. Uh, are people going to be friendly or are they going to be um, harsh? Are they going to be accepting or are they going to be hostile? But to be honest, if I knew that at the end of this talk, as I stood there, uh, as you went past me on the way out, you st- I knew that you would be spitting at me and punching me and mocking me, do you think I would be here today? If, if you were the one speaking, would you be here today if you knew that was going to happen to you? Well, my guess is that we might find other reasons to be elsewhere. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, and far worse than that, betrayal, trial, flogging, crucifixion, death. But still, in a focused, determined way, he went to Jerusalem. What bravery, what courage. Jesus had come to die. This was the most important thing about his life. Now, why? Why? And how should we respond to Jesus? Well, from verse 35 to 52, there are three responses as Jesus leads the way to Jerusalem. And I want us to briefly consider them this morning. The first is this, a selfish response in verses 35 to 41. Look at verse 35 again. Then uh, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. This is amazing when you think about how, you know, insensitive this is. Um, They're just so blind to the mission of Jesus. He just told them that when he was going to get there, he was going to be betrayed and flogged and killed. And what's the first thing they say to him? Uh, We'd like some top jobs at your right and your left-hand side, please. The thing about cabinet positions of power. Back in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter had got the identity of Jesus correct. You are the Messiah. And um, I think that that to the many people at that time, their their view of what would happen when the Messiah would come was very much a glorious picture. When the Messiah would come, well, he would restore 
the fortunes of Israel. He would um, bring in a brand new golden era. Israel would be the top dog in the nations. They would have influence in the whole world. They'd bring transformation to the whole world. And they got this glorious idea. And they'd even, some of them had even seen Jesus transfigured into a glorious appearance, bright shining like the sun. And they thought, wow, this is it, glory in Jerusalem. And um, they just couldn't wrap their heads around this suffering stuff. They just didn't get that his glory, that God's glory, would be revealed in his suffering and death. And I don't think we should be so hard on the architect and the spirit zone. After all, the disciples, the original disciples, didn't really get it for a long time either. Suffering? Crucifixion? Where's the glory in that grotesque scene? Now, all James and John were able to latch on to was this, this idea of him becoming a great and glorious king as they approached Jerusalem. They thought, this must be the big moment. His glory is going to be revealed, maybe like the transfiguration again. And uh, there's going to be a throne of power, and they could smell the position of, of greatness to be at his right and his left. Uh, don't you love it the way they do it? Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, every parent has had this moment where a child is, uh, they're trying to wheedle something out of you, and they, this is a good technique. Uh, would you give me anything I asked for? And Jesus says, okay, what is it you want me to get for you? Oh, to be on your right and left, and you go into your glory. Their response to Jesus as he heads on this mission to Jerusalem is to grasp for glory. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's bizarre to think that to follow the crucified and risen Christ is an opportunity for us to gain personal glory and greatness. But nevertheless, that twisted little thinking still does come over us and still does happen in the world today. Uh, only this last week I was hearing about a, a very uh, famous pastor in America who's been fired from his job and um, by the reports that I read, really, uh, he's been described as a narcissist. He basically wanted everybody to serve him and uh, he behaved in lots of immoral and inappropriate ways. He was on a power trip. Even his job as a pastor was about getting status and power before others. And so we can get this so wrong even today. But Jesus points out the shallowness of their response in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, in the original language, uh, the question is put in a form that clearly indicates they can't. Because what Jesus is talking about is a unique experience that only he can go through. Only he can uh, experience what he's talking about here. Drinking the cup. Being baptized, they're symbols of his death. In chapter 14, we'll get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and that's the night before he was tried and flogged and crucified. And the anguish of the events that are going to happen the next day are so overwhelming that it causes Jesus to say, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he prays to his heavenly Father, um, everything's possible with you. Uh, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but what you will. This cup is uh, a way of referring in the Old Testament to the anger and the judgment of God against sin and rebellion. This is a cup of God's wrath that Jesus is going to be drinking. 
he's uh, not suffering just so much about the physical suffering. It's this spiritual uh, experience of, 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 of the judgment of God against sin. That's the cup that he must drink. And the baptism that he's being referred to here is his own death, that he's going to be overwhelmed with God's judgment. It'll be like a colossal wave that breaks over him and drowns him. Are you able to, to, to drink that cup? Are you able to be baptized with that baptism? And James and John go, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do it. Because they haven't got a clue. They've not understood. They haven't seen that what Jesus is about to do is something that only he uniquely could do as the perfect son of God. Now in verse 39, he does explain to them that in, a, in another sense, they would participate in his sufferings and death. They would benefit from the salvation that he achieved, that they would experience actually some of the rejection and suffering as they, be, as they follow him. But those places on the right and the left, when God's glory would be revealed, well, ironically... It was two thieves on the cross that had those positions as his glory is revealed from the cross. Well, this is the first response to the mission of Jesus. It's a selfish grasp for power. The second response is in verses 42 to 45. And it's a serving response uh, as we respond to the servant king. See, Jesus gathers the arguing group together. The, the ten are no better than the two. They're just a bit miffed that uh, James and John had got in there first, tried to pull a fast one, get in on the top jobs ahead of them. They're, they're angry at that. And they're all arguing together. Jesus gathers the, them together and silences them by just teaching them something vital. He lays out a clear contrast between how greatness is measured in this world and how greatness will be measured in his kingdom. Look at verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Now it's the same today, isn't it? Uh, we learn in life that we'll be graded and uh, treated accordingly. Uh, we measure greatness by lots of silly things, possessions, academic achievements, wealth, power. Um, at school, you learn very early about your, your, where you fit in the social order. Uh, what sort of trainers are you wearing? Are you wearing the cool trainers or not? Uh, how many qualifications did you get? Uh, did you go to university? Oh, wh which university did you go to? Uh, so many workplaces are just about office politics, uh, status and power. You know, everyone's ranked in order of importance. Um, do you have a fancy title? Do you have a nice... Uh, corner office? Do you have your own designated car parking space? How many employees? How big is your salary? Uh, it happens um, that we're kind of impressed by these superficial things. You know, where do people live? What car do they drive? All these silly things. We measure each other power and significance. We find our place in it. And we'll have people above us that we try and kind of uh, get along with and suck up to because we might be able to climb the tree. Uh, that's the great game, isn't it? Going to the next level. And then the people behind us, we'll try and keep them down below us so that 
They don't get in the way of us going up, and we don't mind being a little bit bossy with the people that we're in charge of because we're the boss. Well, it was just like that in Jesus' day, but it's not the standard in his kingdom. Look at verse 43. It's still a challenge to us today. Not so with you. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He turns the, the value system upside down, doesn't he? And it's very uncomfortable. The great ones get served by everybody in this world. In his kingdom, the great ones are those who are willing to serve. If you want to be the most important in his kingdom, you must be willing to be seen as the least important as you serve other people. Become the slave of all. Of all. Really? Of all? Of all. This is what true followers of Jesus are like. This is the servant response of those who know that they follow the servant king. And that's why it's all the more tragic if we say we follow this Messiah, but in our lives, actually, we serve no one else and we expect everybody to serve us. There's a bit of a mismatch there, isn't it? Especially tragic if we treat Christian ministry as a way to fulfill or advance ourselves. To, to get this wrong means that we've not only forgotten the standard of greatness, but we've forgotten the servant king. Look at verse 45. It's really the gospel in a verse. It's, 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 a, it's one of the most wonderful verses in Mark's gospel. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a profound statement, isn't it? About the glory of who Jesus is and what he did when he came the first time. It's a great Christmas verse, actually. For what reason did the Son of God come into the world? Well, to offer up himself. To offer up his life as a ransom for many. That cup of God's judgment that he would drink, it was not for his own rebellion against God. He was completely perfect. That cup was filled with God's judgment that we deserve because because of our selfish actions, because of our sinfulness, because of our sinful behavior against God and against other people. And Jesus willingly chose to come into the world to drink that cup that I deserve to drink, to drink it in my place, so that I would not have to face eternal separation from God. That I, if I trust this, this, this Savior, I can be ransomed. I can be redeemed. I can be forgiven. I can be made right with God. Still in the world today, people are taken hostage. And uh, the, the way that they say they're going to be released is if you pay them a ransom. It's still happening in the world today. Well, Jesus came to pay the ransom payment to free me from my sin, to free me from my guilt to free me from the hold the devil has over my life because of my sin and guilt. That's why in the spirit zone, with no cross, well, they missed the point. They missed the whole thing, didn't they? The most crucial point, 
Yes, it is a symbol of suffering. Suffering more than we could ever comprehend, but just a symbol of suffering? No, the reason that the cross is the emblem for Christianity is because we see it as the greatest symbol of freedom that this world has ever known. It's a rescue. It's a rescue sign. It's the sign of our freedom. Our sin removed, our guilt removed, our ransom paid. At such great cost. And the cross profoundly reveals God to us, doesn't it? Um, what would you expect God to do if he entered the world in a human body? There's nothing that compares with this. It's a silly comparison, but just think for a moment. Buckingham Palace gets in, in, in on the, onto you this week and says, the queen is going to visit you. She's, she's going up to uh, Balmoral for Christmas, and she's going to pop into Edinburgh. She's going to come to your house. The doorbell comes, you open the door, there's the queen, and you say, your majesty, what an honor to have you here. The vacuum cleaner's under the stairs, and if you could give the house a quick cleanup uh, and make me a cup of tea, we could sit down and have a chat. You wouldn't dream of it. You wouldn't dream of it. Well, the greatest one of them all, the glorious son of man, according to Daniel 7, the one who comes and enters into the, the presence of the Ancient of Days, comes to the throne, the one uh, is the, the, he, to him is assigned um, kingship over all things, all peoples, all nations should serve and worship this glorious son of man. The greatest one came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now that's language from Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who offered himself for many. Amazing. You know, when we get this, we can never be the same. When we really understand who Jesus is and what he did, uh, therefore following Jesus is tr transformed completely. So what is our response? Is it a selfish response where we're basically always grasping for glory? Or, or is it the certain response that having come and asked him to ransom us, we've begun to follow him, the servant king, by showing that in our everyday lives of serving others, being the servant of all. Perhaps you can even think of ways in the last week where you've been selfish and you've fallen short on this. And I want to say to you, come back to the cross. There's forgiveness, there's grace, and ask him to help you by his spirit to become this servant that, that naturally flows out of understanding that he's the servant king. But it could be that people are listening today and they're going to go, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, Jesus' death still seems very remote to me and insignificant to me. Um, the life of service that you're describing, well, it seems like a life for losers. Um, I want to get on. I want to succeed. You've watched The Apprentice too often. Uh, you want to be at the top of the tree. You just can't see it, just can't understand it. Well, can I suggest to you that if, if that's your thoughts today, then you might want to consider the third response, which is of this blind man, Bartimaeus. And in verse 46 to 52, we see this saving response that pleads for mercy. I love this account. 
this midsection of Mark begins with a blind person being healed and it ends with a blind person being healed before Jesus then heads into Jerusalem, which we're going to see in chapter 11. And it's full of little eyewitness details. Um, this blind beggar, he hears that Jesus is passing by. Uh, he's coming to, Jer to Jericho. And he demonstrates his great confidence that Jesus could change his whole life. And he really is such a model of how you're supposed to respond to Jesus. The disciples have taken so long to understand that he is God's promised king. But Bartimaeus just bellows out what he firmly believes. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps calling out. Now the crowds around him don't show him a lot of mercy. They just tell him, shut up. But he keeps shouting all the more. There's nothing that can hold him back. Son of David, have mercy on me. Here's someone who understands who Jesus is, the son of David, the, the great Messiah King. And he realizes he doesn't, have, doesn't deserve anything from him. And, and so he pleads for mercy. Have mercy. And despite... Jesus' clear commitment to get to Jerusalem, we see his great generosity that he stops and calls this beggar to come to him. Cheer up. He's calling you, they said. What wonderful words. And um, he's quite the opposite to the rich young man. Remember the rich young man that we looked at last week? He wasn't willing to follow Jesus because he had such great wealth well this man he doesn't have much he's got a begging cloak well he throws that aside to get to Jesus and um, Jesus asks him exactly the same question that he asked the disciples what do you want me to do for you this time a very different response to the disciples they ask for glory he asks for mercy and with great faith in the ability of Jesus he says I want to see and Jesus merely speaks the words. Verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now I think Mark has put this real historical event here as a model response of how we should respond to Jesus. For Bartimaeus believes, sees, and follows. He follows Jesus as he goes on the way to bring in God's kingdom through his suffering and death on the cross. And if you're still blind to the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection, or you simply have never personally responded, then you need an even greater miracle than Bartimaeus to open your eyes. And he shows you the way forward this morning, or whenever you're watching this. You need to plead for God to have mercy on you. For God to forgive your rebellion and your sin because of the ransom pr price that Jesus paid for you. That alone is the saving response that really matters. It's the way that every disciple begins his life journey following the servant king. We ask his forgiveness for our past selfishness and sin. And we experience this salvation by God's mercy. And then we follow the servant king. We're going to sing the classic song that Graham Kendrick wrote, wrote a long time ago, The Servant King, because it so perfectly describes what a disciple is, that we learning how to serve, and in our lives enthrone this Jesus, 
And we do so by putting each other's needs first, knowing that it is Christ ultimately that we're serving. So we're going to stand and hum or sing at home this final song and then prepare our hearts before we